Our Old Testament lesson is found in Nehemiah chapter 5, reading verses 1 through 19. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, and wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house And from his labor who does not keep this promise, so may he be taken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. That was weak. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Father, we're grateful for this word, a word that feels foreign to us, of distant cultures and times, events that are outside of us, and yet a word that we know you have spoken. 
And your word promises that when we gather, you are present among us, and it's your spirit that leads us into all understanding. It's in your light, God, that we see light. And so speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. We've noted over the first four chapters the opposition that Nehemiah faced as he returned from serving in the household of the Persian emperor to Jerusalem where the city's walls were broken down. And so Nehemiah was engaged in a building project, restoring the city of Jerusalem that the promises of God would be restored and recovered for the people. This was Nehemiah's project. But in the midst of his project, there was tremendous opposition that began to pop up. First, it was two men, Sanballat and Tobiah. Sanballat was the most powerful of the opposition. He was the governor of Samaria to the north and probably had the most vested interest in seeing Nehemiah fail. Tobiah was to the east. But then we see that there were others added to this mixture of uh, this alliance, an unholy alliance arrayed against Nehemiah, Gershom to the south. And then we learned that the Ashdodites, who were on a very small sliver of turf against the sea to the west of Nehemiah. And so the picture that's presented for us is that Nehemiah is physically surrounded. He is cut off. He has an unholy alliance all around him who wants to see him fail. They were making inroads amongst the people. They were writing letters. They were attempting to taunt and shame the people in their work to make them feel foolish for what they had given themselves to. And we've seen over the last weeks that this is a wonderful picture of what it is to engage in building God's kingdom today, not with physical walls, but as we give ourselves to the labors of God's work that we also experience that type of opposition in many different ways. But in chapter 4, we saw that the opposition threatened to stall the work completely, but Nehemiah preaches a very short sermon and says, Remember the Lord. And the people rallied. They remembered God's promises, the God who was mighty, the God who saved, the God who had delivered the people of Israel through the exodus. And that this is the key to the church and its labors and its works is to remember God's promises and for us to call on the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us, all that he will do for us. But sadly, for Nehemiah, the only opposition he was to face was not just to simply be external opposition. Nehemiah in chapter 5 encounters an internal opposition that takes place in the church. And we see here that one of the greatest threats to the church and the work of the kingdom is the church itself. And it would perhaps be more convenient for us if the main problems for us lie out there, that the problem that we most seriously face is them. But one of the things that chapter 5 points out for us is that we need to have an equally censorious eye pointed to us, that due to the depth of human sinfulness, and that we still lie on this side of final redemption, that the church is still of a divided loyalty, that we carry our own problems, that sin lives and abides here and corrupts the work of the building of the kingdom. As we move into chapter 5, 
one of the most critical things for us is to understand exactly the nature of the problem and what has gone so wrong and how it applies to us today. And as we look in verses 1 through 5, we do have to work through some historical detail because we see here the problem outlined. If you follow in verse 2, you see that there was a great outcry from the people. They were disturbed by something. And then this is what Nehemiah records for us. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Now you can imagine, for these days they have been laboring on the wall. And so they were distracted from their agricultural affairs. And it was the end of the season. And the harvest was not as strong as, they, as what they were expecting. And so the harvest was weak and the laborers were few, all right? And so they were facing a tremendous problem here. They didn't have enough food. And they were in that situation because they had given themselves to the work of God's promises and to the, to the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. This is coupled with the fact that in verse 3 we learned there was a famine. But then another group chimes in and voices their own particular concern in verse 3. For there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So this group actually possessed land. The first group was simply hungry. They were probably the peasant class, and they were probably already on the margins of society. They were looking for bare necessities to survive. This group actually has possessions. They possess land. But because they were impoverished and the harvest was weak, they had to take out loans against what they owned in order to see them through the difficulty. And then in verse 4, we learn of yet another group, another complaint that was made. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Because the harvest was weak, because everyone had been engaged in the work, this group could not pay the taxes that they owed to the Persian emperor. Those taxes, we know from historical studies, ran somewhere around 20%, which was extremely heavy in that particular day. It was a deep burden. But then we learn something even more disturbing in verse 5 that was happening to all three of these groups, if you follow with me. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. They're just saying we're one and the same. And then they state their critique. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. And so for those second and third groups who had mortgaged or reversed mortgaged their property, they were now, in order to satisfy the debts, selling their children off into slavery to attempt to satisfy that debt. That sounds, I know, harsh and cruel, and it certainly was. But in the ancient world, it was one of the very few things that could be done when the debtors came calling. If you gave up your land, you had no ability to buy back your child from slavery. And so that was what they were attempting to work out. But this was an unpleasant, corrupt situation that was taking place here in Jerusalem. The problems were significant. They didn't simply affect the lower classes. They were affecting everyone except the upper tier. Tremendous, tremendous economic distress. And this distress was in large part due to the fact 
that the people had given themselves to work for the kingdom of God. In verse 7, we specifically note who is the source of this trouble. You'll see that Nehemiah took counsel with himself, and then he brought charges against the nobles and officials. And so the very upper tier of society, these were the ones who were charging this interest, these were the ones who had some grain, and these were the ones who were then enslaving the children. This was a tremendous problem. Nehemiah is deeply burdened by it because these parties, fellow Israelites, fellow members of the church, were doing this to their brothers. You see, in Leviticus 25, there's two things economically that the law of God requires of Israelites in dealing with one another. The first is that they were not to enslave a fellow Israelite. Even when he fell into debt, he was not to become a slave. He could become a hired worker. He could work off his debt in that fashion, but he was not to be enslaved. And the second thing is that they were not to charge interest, especially to poor brethren who were falling into debt, because this would only make the situation worse. And so there were two provisions in Old Testament law, judicial laws that don't necessarily apply in a one-to-one -one fashion today, but that were to govern this time in Israel's life, that they were not to enslave and not to charge interest. They were to have compassion and be merciful and just to those who were falling into hard times and hardships. And this is the problem, is that what the creditors were doing, what the bankers at this time in Jerusalem were, do, were doing was perfectly acceptable in the Persian Empire. And what they had done is they had imported the standards of the world, and because everyone around them said that was all right, they were then conducting their affairs in accord with those standards and not in accord with the law of God and the word of God. And this is what the church is always in danger of doing. That we're always in danger of importing worldly standards that are okay by everyone around us in which we can receive approval and affirmation. Everyone will say, that's just fine. But we don't turn a careful ear to listen carefully to what God would have of us, what God's command is for us in community life and what he desires from us. Nehemiah obviously has a strong reaction. The original language here has strength to it that's difficult to capture. We simply say very angry in verse 6. He was upset. This is a cry of injustice and outrage when he realizes what is going on in the community. It was ridiculous to him. Everything was upside down. While he had looked at rebuilding the holy city, he was recognizing that the holy people were not so holy and that they were taking advantage of one another. But why exactly was it so offensive to him? And if we want to understand the offense, we have to pay attention to the personal pronouns that are used throughout chapter 5. First, follow with me in verse 5. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Follow down into verse 7. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials and said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And then follow finally into verse 8. And said to them, we, as far as we are able, have, brought, have bought back 
our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you see all the inclusive language of our, our brothers. And what Nehemiah and what the Jewish people are indicating in using all of these personal pronouns of possession and belonging and inclusion is that they belong to one family. And this family was not simply a flesh and blood. This family was one formed by God's promise, by his covenant with them, that God had set them apart to be a holy nation, to be his own people, his treasured possession. And because they belonged to God, because there was this vertical reality that God had assigned, there was a horizontal reality that followed that. And this is why Nehemiah is so outraged. And friends, these are the two dynamics of the covenant that God makes with us. That we are to love God. And then our love for God is demonstrated and worked out in our community life with one another. This is the basis of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments particularly focused on what it means to love and serve God. But even the fourth begins to turn toward the neighbor. And then the remaining six orient us to what it is to then work out that love for God in the community that God has created, that he has assigned us to be a part of. And this is what outrages Nehemiah, is they were showing ultimately disregard for God by not regarding their neighbor. Look what he says in verse 9. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? And you see, Nehemiah understood. They simply weren't offending their Jewish brothers. They were offending God. They were not walking in the fear of God. Their lives were not in line with what God had commanded. And that's because the horizontal realities of the Christian faith are to be worked out because of the vertical reality. And in Jesus Christ... We are brought into this gigantic family of God. And we have brothers and sisters all around because of God's grace and mercy, not because of our deserving. And then we are to work out what it means to live in love and unity and with grace and generosity towards one another and that we can't ignore that. The Apostle John picks up a similar theme in chapter 3 of his epistle. And he says that if we ignore our poor brother and act as if he's not there, he concludes that the love of God doesn't live inside of us. And this is the challenging thing for us, is that we can never tear these two things apart. The love of God and the generosity and kindness and love that is owed to our neighbor. That for biblical religion, these two are inseparable. We can't tear them apart or put them asunder. And it's very tempting for us to import worldly standards that then conveniences us to not have to care about neighbor the way God would indicate that we do. That's the challenge that Nehemiah faced. And in the rebuilding of the church and the renewal of the church's life, certainly it's a challenge that we always face. It's continually before us as we hear the command and the promise of God. It leads us to the final question, though. How do we handle it? When we do find ourselves importing worldly standards into the way that we relate to one another, how do we handle it? How do we reverse that? Two things that we find happening here in Nehemiah 5. First, 
We confront realities head on. Nehemiah takes counsel with himself. And in verse 7, we discover that he brings charges against the nobles and officials. It certainly had to be a fearsome thing. These were the most powerful people, and Nehemiah goes to them. And then in verse 9, he says very plainly, The thing that you are doing is not good. It's a basic confrontation. He then in verse 12 calls the priest. And he has a worship service in which vows were taken, in which commitments were made. And he gives an illustration. He shakes out their clothing and says, so may this happen to you if you break this vow. Nehemiah confronts the realities that were dividing the people head on. He prescribes a new course in verses 9 through 11. He says, not this way, but that way. Let's have fruits that keep with this repentance. And Nehemiah in verse 10 even indicates that he and his own family, who were obviously wealthy and part of this upper tier, had participated in some way in gaining interest from those who were without. And Nehemiah includes himself. And he says, we've got to forsake that. We've got to leave that behind. But it involved a massive confrontation. And when we're honest with ourselves, to think of a confrontation like that, it fills every one of us with fear. None of us really like it. I was talking to a friend several years ago. They were describing going to lunch with a friend, and it was clear at a certain point in the conversation that something was about to change, that the conversation changed tone. And there was a conversation about to take place that he didn't want to engage with. And I asked him, well, what, what scared you so much in that moment? He said, well, because I didn't know what they were going to say. I didn't know what they were going to think about me. I didn't know of all the things I could have done wrong. I wasn't sure what was about to happen. And friends, in the face of confrontation, this is oftentimes what makes us flee. Even though it's a gracious God who brings critique, we simply don't want to engage it. David Pallison, in his book, Seeing Through New Eyes, he talks about the different strategies that we tend to use when confrontation comes our way. And he identifies four basic strategies. As I look through these, I found that I was adept at all four. First one, he says, is that we shift blame onto others. That is that when we're confronted, one way around the confrontation is just to simply shift the blame and divert it. That we make others responsible for what was not going right. A second strategy that we like to use is we misdirect attention to secondary matters. When someone brings something up and we sense that it is really important, and it perhaps is going to cost us something, and it is embarrassing that what we want to do is turn attention to something else that we know is perhaps of some relative importance to get the attention off ourselves. We misdirect. A third thing that we do is that when our failures are pointed out, we tend to cover our failures with our successes. Well, of course, yes, you know, I have my lesser lights, but <laughs> look over here. Look at what I've done. A fourth thing that we tend to do is that when we're confronted, we compare in order to justify ourselves. We say, well, 
I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or at least I'm not doing that, and certainly better than it was. But all the strategies that we can come up with are ultimately an offense to God. It's not an offense to Nehemiah, ultimately. It's not an offense to the person who sits across from you. It's ultimately an offense to God that when we don't want to listen to faithful wounds that are delivered by a friend who has our ultimate care and concern, but why do we do this? It comes back to those personal pronouns again. You see, this is where defensiveness and the failure to receive confrontation is rooted That we will be defensive and will not receive confrontation in a positive way when we forget the personal pronouns of the gospel. Because it's not simply that he is your brother, but you have a God saying, I am your God. You are my people. Christ is for you. Christ is in you. All these great promises of the gospel. And friends, this is what secures us. This is what lets us know that our status in front of God is something that doesn't change because of what Christ has done for us. And then because that status is secure, we can then endure the conflict. We can enter into the confrontation and we can listen carefully because we know that that confrontation doesn't change our status. We can absorb what it is that's said because we have been forgiven. We can pull back the deep layers of what's wrong and call it ugly and be able to sustain it. As we've been working through the building, some of the walls that we've opened and we thought, oh my goodness, what is that? One whole wall covered with mold. (laughs) No one knew it was there. It's so awful. And when someone angles in on us and begins to point something out, that is what we fear. We fear, what if they pull back and see something really awful? Because you and I both know it's there. That's what we fear. But it is the grace of God that allows you to put aside the defensive strategies, to tame those, to put them off in order to engage with what's being said and to listen carefully to what God is saying. Remarkably, the nobles and officials listened. At first, it says they were silent and had nothing to say. But then they agreed. They turned. And it is this repentance that the mercy and the grace of God leads us to. And so take up the confrontation. Allow it to happen. And know that it is the the gracious work of God through confrontation that brings about change and transformation for us. Nehemiah confronted the realities head on just like we need to. The second piece of what needed to happen or how it, how it was going to be handled is that we have to pursue justice with generosity. As you work through the passage in verse 10, we see that Nehemiah, he calls the people that they would stop breaking the law of God. He says, stop charging interest. They knew they were not supposed to do that. Of course, it was an acceptable Persian practice, but you were not to charge interest, especially of a poor brother from Leviticus 25. But then something else happens in verses 11 and 12. Follow with me here. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, 
and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Now, this is the extraordinary thing about the passage. What God required of them was simply to start, stop charging interest. But then something exponential happens. They decided to right the wrongs. And they went beyond what the law required in its letter. And they said, no, not only are we going to do what's just, we're going to do what's generous. We're going to go beyond and seek restoration. We're going to seek wholeness. Nehemiah then, in his own example, demonstrates this. It's remarkable. In verses 14 through 19, we get an account from Nehemiah of how he didn't exact and charge what he could have charged. He didn't take the salary that he could have taken. He obviously was a man well off from a family with with, uh, riches and treasures. He was a very capable individual as the cupbearer to the Persian emperor. But Nehemiah didn't come back and exact the thing that the Judah's governors had done in the past. He lays aside his interest in order to pursue the interest of the people. And friends, it's in this that we see what the real heart of Christian community is and how it finds its fullness. Because it is in this notion of disadvantaging ourselves in order to advantage someone else that we see the beauty of community being healed and restored here, of people making sacrifices for other people, for their well-being, of laying aside their interest. And it is in this that we see a shadow of Jesus Christ. He's the true model of this community, that he is the one who laid down his own interest. He didn't grasp his equality with God as something to be held on to, but he humbled himself and became into the world in the form of a servant, a slave, and he died a death on a cross, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2. And it is this model that's put before us, that that is the key to undoing all the wrongs that happen in Christian community. And Paul instructs us to have this mind, which is ours in Christ Jesus, to put on this mind. And so, friends, for all the things that can go wrong in the household of God, we know them. All the things that can go wrong, this is the antidote. It's to put on the mind of Jesus Christ, which he has given us in his spirit. And so let's ask him to help us with that. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect honestly upon ourselves Upon our life in the church, we know that we are often the source of our own problems. We see it here in Nehemiah 5. We confess it, that it's part of us. We ask that you would help us, that we would follow our Lord Jesus, that we would see in Nehemiah the shadow of that example, and that we would find his grace overflowing to forgive our failures and also to strengthen us to walk in his way disadvantaging ourselves to advantage others. Build up our community in this fashion, in this way. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.